The Funambulist, Design and Racism, Minha Fam. So Leopold invited me to come and talk about um, design and racism, a topic which um, I'm perfectly happy to talk about, though I do feel like I need to say in, in a Funambulist event that I am not an architect. I'm not, I don't study architecture, but I do have a lot of things to say about the production of bodies and the production of space. So I think that um, fashion and architecture are very much in conversation with each other, and Leopold didn't mention, but because we have Aisha in the, in the audience, we also co-wrote a piece in um, the New Inquiry um, titled Putting, Putting Spinoza in a T-shirt, <laughs> something like that, where we talk about the, the kind of the value of the T-shirt as a universe, uh, as close to possible being a universal design, right? Um, but today what I'm, I, I want to talk about is um, a, an approach to the question of design and racism that um, I'm working on, right? So this too is preliminary. Um, so I appreciate that gesture. Um, I want to just begin with a story. Um, a few months ago, last March, so um, this is happening right now. The French fashion house Balenciaga showed its fall-winter 2016 collection. And this is one of the models from the show in Paris. Um, some of the models, like this one, carried the striped tote bag, right? Now, um, people in Thailand immediately recognized this striped tote bag as the, one, um, the, as the one that they've been carrying around forever, right? So this bag costs, I don't know, like, you know, thousands of dollars. Um, the one that you can buy in Thailand, it's called the Samfang bag, but um, from what I understand, people just call it the shopping tote. Um, you can get for a couple of dollars, right? And so the people in Thailand took to Instagram, as you do nowadays, <laughs> took to Instagram, um, first to note the similarity, if you could switch the, yeah, to note the similarity of the bags, <laughs> right? Um, and then also to kind of you know, I would argue to troll Balenciaga a little bit and to say, you know, we know that you copy this thing. We are, in fact, um, you know, look at how stylish we are. We were the trendsetters before, before you came up with your bag, right? The Balenciaga bag is made of leather. This is made of plastic. But you can see um, visually, aesthetically, it's, it's very, very similar. Um, and I think also people in Thailand were, um, in addition to sort of trolling Balenciaga, were also a little bit thrilled, right, that all of a sudden, a, a thing that was very local to Thailand, um, was very local to Thailand, is super cheap, has made it into kind of the, the domain of luxury Western fashion, right? So there was a lot of things going on here. Um, I also want to note too that when Balenciaga copied this Thai bag, he was not just, or the brand itself, was not just copying the, the Thai bag, but it was also copying previous Western designers who had copied other so-called you know, Asian um, carry-alls, if you could switch. I, I don't know how many of you remember this, but this plaid was called the Chinatown plaid bag. Um, over here, Louis Vuitton created a bag that's, I mean, identical, right, um, in 2007, but now it has his logo on it, and that's going to be important when we think about um, how copyright works. Um, there's a collection from Celine, and of course, this is, a, this is a, um, just an image of um, a Chinese man at a train station in China. Um, so, so there's multiple layers of copying going on. Um, I also want to mention that the, the tie bag and this, this um, bag, or the, the original of this bag, is also sometimes in Africa and Asia referred to as the refugee bag, uh, which already hints 
add, it gives us some clues to how design is implicated in the racial production of space, mobilities, and bodies, right? The refugee bag, not the expatriate bag, not the tourist bag, um, right? The refugee bag. But what distinguishes the Balenciaga bag from the Marc Jacobs bag, for example, is the response the Balenciaga bag got from ordinary Thai people and also Thai government officials. So in addition to the Instagram photos, which are uh, a few of them are right there, um, Thai people, and this was really shocking to me and, and why I became interested in it, Thai people expressed concern about going to France, and of, of course France being the home of Balenciaga, um, going to France and being mistaken for carrying a fake Balenciaga bag. I think I'm doing that on purpose. I think I'm mispronouncing that on purpose. Um, so in France, it's illegal to buy fake fashion and is punishable by a fine of up to 300,000 euros, which, which converts to about $330,000, or three years in jail. Um, and France isn't alone in criminalizing um, non-elite consumption. In 2010, Italy made news for fining a tourist 1,000 euros for buying a fake Louis Vuitton bag. The Louis Vuitton bag costs about $7 to $8, um, and that was in Venice. So the concern that Thai people had about going to France with their bag, but you know, it's, it's, it's made to be carried around. It's durable, it's made from this durable plastic, it's made to be, to, um, to, to tote things around it, so it's perfect for traveling. Um, but, but the idea that Thai people were nervous that them carrying their original bag would make them look like um, counterfeiters, right, was an interesting thing for me to, to think about and to investigate. And again, this, the fear is real if we're looking at history. Um, Thai people's reaction is indicative for me of the ways that IP law, intellectual property law, and its racial norms function as what I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about as an invisible architecture that controls, organizes, and makes possible or impossible certain kinds of mobility. So just a really quick primer on intellectual property systems in the US and Europe. Um, in the European Union, intellectual property, um, fashion is protected as intellectual property. Um, that's not true in the US. Very few people know this, which is surprising to me, but in the US, fashion design is not protected under the US Copyright Act. Um, certain things are copyrightable, so like a logo is copyrightable or a, a decorative feature of the garment, but the garment itself, the garment in its entirety is not copyright protected, right? So, and remember I said earlier that Louis Vuitton putting his logo on that, that quote unquote Chinatown plaid bag is important, right? Because that is actually what's copyrightable, not the plaid itself um, and not the shape of the bag. Um, so, but in both of these very different IP systems, Europe and the US, one where there is copyright for fashion and one where there's not, generally people understand copyright for fashion as being pretty weak, right, and unenforceable. Um, one of the things that these different, these different IP systems also share is that they, they both share um, a bias or a blind spot that effectively um, functions as a wall of authorial impossibility. So both sets of IP laws make it illegal to copy any designs that are eligible for copyright protection. So the trademark, for example, in the United States is copyright protected. Um, but generally, in order to be eligible for copyright protection, the work has to have a nameable author. Uh, because what IP protection grants is the protection of an author's right. So it's not really the product itself, right, or the, the work of art itself, but the author. 
um, it protects the author's right to say how the, the work is going to be produced and circulated. Uh, so what happens to the work, how it becomes a commodity. Uh, but you have to have someone's name to put on the registration, the copyright registration form. So you have to be able to name, right, who created, say, this, this stripe um, design or who created, who, who designed that, that plaid that we saw earlier. And for a, lot of, um, for a lot of ethnic and indigenous groups, that's just not possible, right? So the way in which copyright works in Europe and the US um, leaves out, there's a blind spot, leaves out the ways in which collective authorship or community authorship um, works, right? And, and in fact, in copyright law, there's something called a cultural heritage exception in which things that don't have nameable authors are considered cultural heritage, which is to say that they are legally understood as belonging to anyone, and they're belonging to no one, and therefore belonging to anyone, right? So while, you, um, while it was perfectly legal for Balenciaga, Louis Vuitton, Celine, Stella McCartney to take these designs, right, once they create their bag and put their label on it, their brand on it, they actually own the copyright to this thing, right? That was that you know Chinese people or Thai people or whoever have been creating and, and using for years, right? So if you think if you know we all know how litigious the United States is, but what could happen then is that Balenciaga and Louis Vuitton are actually in the position now to go after people who have the original bag. Right. Um, for for ethnic and indigenous groups, the prerequisite of a nameable author presents a wall of impossibility in the invisible architecture of IP law. Asia, Africa, and America, uh, for indigenous designs, whether in Asia, Africa, or the Americas, uh, this noble author is just not something that. That's not how authorship works. Authorship is an idea that exists, but it's not tied to an individual nameable author. Right. Um, and this actually goes back to a point that you made earlier, Alicia, about how history and, and knowledge is, is produced, right? That oftentimes it's oral, there's no paper, there's no, there's no signature, there's no author's name, right? Um, legally under Western IP laws, I mentioned earlier, this is considered cultural heritage and therefore totally okay. Um, we've seen this earlier, if you move to the next print, this is, um, this is a Maasai print. It's really distinctive to Maasai people. Um, and this is just one example of a Louis Vuitton um, African-inspired collection. Again, there's a, really interesting, there's a really interesting statistic about Maasai, this Maasai print. So Louis Vuitton, Diamond First Work, lots of, lots of um, Western designers have used this print. And the Maasai people have gotten nothing from it. And the Maasai people, like the Navajo Nation, are starting to go after people who are taking their designs, right? And they've actually now um, trademarked this plaid. But whether or not um, tribal law or, or different kinds of jurisdictions will matter in the US and Europe is, is, up, is up for grabs. Recently, um, uh, indigenous Mexican um, group in, um, is going after Isabel Morant, right? Also a French designer. Have you guys heard of this? Uh, Isabel Morant took their a very specific, unique embroidery to this group of indigenous people in Mexico, women in Mexico, um, took it, um, and and this indigenous group is now arguing that she stole. This is design theft. This is theft, um, cultural theft. 
the latest the, the latest story in the saga is that Isabel Morant is now going to the trademark office, the copyright office, and trying to copyright this design, right? So, so this keeps happening. Um, so, there's, so there's a wall of, of um, authorial impossibility in that these designs are considered heritage, cultural heritage, right, legally. But there's another problem with the copyright law, which I think it presents another kind of wall of um, impossibility. The racial history of copyright law. Um, there are racial norms underpinning IP law, and this racial history is long and complex, and, I, and I'm not gonna get into it here, but one pretty well accepted historical fact about copyright is that it privileges whiteness and masculinity. At its inception in the late 16th century, copyright law was created for the purposes of protecting an individual's creative and intellectual property. What that means is that implicitly, copyright law um, protected people who could own property, right? So if you go back historically, who could own property? Mostly um, pretty affluent white men, right? Um, and even today, when we imagine innovators and, and inventors, White men are still overrepresented. I just took these from, I, I did a Google search on um, inventor or innovator, and these are some of the images that came up, right? And even here where it's abstract, they're dressed in this, you know, kind of masculine suit, right? Um, so this idea about white, that authors really, um, that white men embody the ideal author is still with us. On the other side of the same racial wall of authorial impossibility are widely held stereotypes of copyright infringers, sometimes called IP pirates or design pirates. Just as the figure of the innovator is racialized and gendered in terms of whiteness and masculinity, the cultural figure of the pirate is also racialized and gendered. And in recent years, as anyone who's been um, reading anything about intellectual property and free trade agreement knows, the copyright infringer or IP pirate, the person who's imagined to be too uncreative to, to produce anything, um, or is only a copier or reproducer, is regularly imagined to be Asian. Former Republican presidential candidate Carly Fiorina, who it looks like will not be the vice, pres uh, vice presidential <laughs> running mate, um, said almost exactly a year ago today, um, this is a quote from her, I think I had, yeah, there she is, there she is. Um, and this is a quote from her, it's, it's on the bottom. Um, I have been doing business in China for decades and I will tell you that yeah, the Chinese can take a test, but what they can't do is innovate. They're not terribly imaginative, that is why they are stealing our intellectual property. And if, and if anyone thinks that the racialization or Asianization of the IP infringer is new, it's worth remembering that in the 1980s, I love this part of um, IP history, in the 1980s, Japanese people were stereotyped as copywriters because of the big bad VCR. When Sony came out with the VCR, it confirmed for many Americans, and, in, and certainly in the American media, that Japanese were um, predisposed to piracy, right? <laughs> uh, and you know, the VCR has been our downfall, right? Like Hollywood collapsed and everything. This was, this was, what, was, this was what was predicted. Um, so all this is to say is that the invisible architecture of copyright law isn't just constituted by policy walls and doors that facilitate and privilege white men's access to legal protection. It's also constructed by racial walls and locked doors that are obstacles for people who either have different notions of collective or communal authorship or for people whose bodies and behaviors are rarely seen in, are regularly seen in terms of piracy. 
When Thai people worried about being accused of carrying counterfeit bags that are actually the original design that Balenciaga copied, when they worried about looking like knockoff consumers, even though the real knockoffs are Balenciaga and its customers, we clearly see that what I've been describing as the invisible architecture of the IP system um, also has very real material parameters and consequences. IP law's invisible architecture controls the actual movements of people, things, and capital. IP law makes it possible and even easier for commodities and capital to move across national borders. Makes it possible for Balenciaga to take this Thai bag and um, copy it without infringing on any existing copyright laws and norms. And then makes it possible for all of us to buy the Balenciaga version of the bag wherever Balenciaga chooses to sell it. Um, all of this without owing the Thai people anything, right? If IP laws um, help move commodities and capital across borders, um, it also limits Thai people's mobility. Racist ideas about Asians and piracy limit how Asians move physically through the world, but also limit their mobility socially. Um, luxury commodities like Balenciaga's products mobilize the social status of its consumers. It can move someone from a middle class identity to an upper class identity, but this isn't necessarily true for Asians um, who are presumed to be carrying the fake product even when what they have is the original. Um, at the same time, the racial norms underpinning copyright law make it possible for whites who copy to still be seen as innovators. In, in my research into this, this um, latest fashion copying scandal, no one has accused Balenciaga of knocking off the Thai design. No one has even used the term copying, right? Often, and we see this over and over again, euphemisms like inspiration, homage, etc., are used um, instead of the word, you know, knockoff, right? Um, and so, in all of these ways, um, copyright norms and also copyright policies um, enable and obstruct the movement of people, things, and capital in ways that ultimately benefit IP property owners. And so I'm just going to end here um, with an inducement um, in this conversation about design and racism to not neglect invisible architectures. And to quote the, the very often quoted words of Bucky Fuller, forms no longer can follow functions because the significant functions are invisible. Thank you so much.